might be the first podcast episode that my husband actually listens to. <laughs> I love that. Hello and welcome back to Health in the 34th. My name is Marissa Alcantar, Story Bank and Policy Specialist for the Alliance for Healthy Kansas. And I'm Lacey Kennett, Communications Director for the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. Good to be back with everyone again. Marissa, I am very excited for this episode. Me too. This episode was really great to record because I feel like we covered so much ground. So this episode is a little meta for me uh, because it came about because of another episode of this podcast. So back in January, I was hanging out on Twitter as some are to do and saw that our guests today had actually tweeted about the episode we did with April and Sean. The Legislative 101 podcast. Yes. And then I knew that I had to have, like, we should, we got to have him on. So you reached out and he was excited to do it. Yeah. So our guest this episode, we really built that up. <laughs> our, guest <laughs> this- <laughs> our guest this week is Matt Kleinman. He's the Director of Community Development for Vibrant Health in Wyandotte County, but he has done so much more work on top of that, which we get into in this episode. A little full disclosure, I knew of him prior to this work as a member of the University of Kansas basketball team from 2006 to 2009, including during the 2008 national championship team, the big, the one that made everybody freak out because it went yeah. down at the last minute. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Um, so I was in college at that time and I followed the team pretty closely and he was one of my favorite players. So, uh, needless to say, when I saw that he had tweeted about our podcast, I was very excited and was like, he needs to be on this. So I was nervous during our chat, a little geeky maybe, but I was excited to talk to him. Absolutely. And, uh, Matt's educational background is in architecture, but with a strong public health focus, which I found so fascinating And as someone working on my master's in public health, I really enjoyed talking to him about his unique work and his perspective. Yeah, it's it's not something I've ever delved into before. So uh, we talked about so many things. Without further ado, let's get into it. Matt, welcome to the podcast. And we are so glad to have you here uh, on the Health in the 34th podcast. Can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Where to begin? First off, I'm just honored to be here. I know the work you all are doing to increase awareness about this really important issue is is very valuable. I know the more we communicate across our state and and find ways to improve our messaging and and just really raise awareness and education about increasing access to to healthcare, the more it helps people. Um, So I appreciate the work you all put in. I want to put that out there up front. Well, thank you. Um, my, My background is a little interesting in how I got to this space. And I don't really know where to start, but I'll try to start at the beginning just to give some perspective. I was, I grew up in Overland Park, Kansas. I I thought I'd be an artist and I was tall. So maybe I'd play basketball. And Mm -hmm. I had an art teacher, uh, Larry Wayland, who told me, Matt, you're not a very good artist, but maybe you'd make a good architect. (laughs) And that set me on this course where I'm like, okay, I could build architecture buildings. Like I could, I could learn architecture. And so I thought I'd go to the University of Pacific on a basketball scholarship to be an artist. And all of a sudden now I'm thinking, well, maybe I should do architecture, but they don't have architecture. And then all of a sudden I got a call from Roy Williams in North Carolina saying, would you like to walk on at North Carolina? Wow. That's, that's kind of cool, but I can't afford out of state tuition like that. Mm-hmm. A week later, I got a call from Tim Jankovich who was on Bill Self's staff. And he said, Hey, come, come walk on at KU. And they had an architecture program. And so I uh, enrolled in architecture and art and I dropped art pretty quickly because I was like, Mr. Whalen was right. I was not a very good artist. <laughs> um, but I, I started thinking about how I wanted to be a part of designing buildings that could bring people together in a public way. And sure enough, I'm here as a basketball player learning about architecture, the natural extension of sports stadiums. And I started doing internships for major national famous architecture firms in the Kansas City area who build sports stadiums. And they're building Super Bowls and World Cups and all that great stuff. But I graduated from KU in 09. So I was a KU for five years getting a master's of architecture. But then I went into the aftermath of the 08 recession mm. and no architects were getting jobs. So I went to grad school to study urban design. 
And while there, I was uh, living in China, living in Buenos Aires. I was living. In, I got to you know study in Singapore. I had a great experience um, that really opened my eyes to the world. But one thing I noticed was whenever there was a big stadium being built or a big project, it was always clearing out an existing neighborhood. It was usually a marginalized population that was under-resourced and it was just devastating. You could see the devastation, like literally see the rubble with like children's shoes in the rubble because they were cleared out so quickly. And it made me realize, well, thank God I'm not, you know, having to deal with that in Kansas City, you know, but then I come back to Kansas City, I'm like, oh, we do that all the time. We do that with sports stadiums. We do that with uh, civic, you know, institutions that use eminent domain to clear land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I started to realize was oftentimes the money that goes into those projects is never offered up to communities. They're never asked, well, what would you do neighborhood with a quarter billion dollar tax incentive that gives you access to the things you need? And, you know, when you ask the community, when you really listen to communities, they want a grocery store in their neighborhood. They want a safe and affordable housing. They want sidewalks that's so their kids don't have to walk in the street to get to school. They want parks that are clean and they have amenities, like all the things that you would want in your neighborhood, every community wants in their neighborhood, but they don't get that opportunity for a variety of reasons. And so I sort of started realizing I wasn't gonna be a very good architect either. Mm. Um, Because architecture tends to serve those with money Mm. and not communities. And so I gravitated towards um, teaching early on and I started teaching architecture at KU and I started sort of trying to, you know, relearn what design could be like when you actually support what communities want. And we picked up really early on that there's only really two clients when you are in that sort of space, the cities or states, usually cities who want to see their communities thrive and healthcare and healthcare who wants to see the built environment be improved because the social determinants of health tell us that, you know, as much as 20%, if not more, of our health outcomes are shaped by access to the basic things we need to be healthy. So if you live in a community that doesn't have a grocery store, whether you're in Perry, Kansas or Northeast Kansas City, Kansas, it's unlikely you're going to cook a healthy meal if there's no grocery store within a, you know, a a, a long drive, right? Mm -hmm. And so increasing access in the built environment to health is how I got into health and the work I do now, which I kind of term community health design. So it's working with communities to envision and ultimately implement the projects that they wanna see. And so it's still using the skills of architecture and design, but that gets into this whole new world of public health. And then pretty quickly on you realize, well, shoot, the biggest healthcare access is not gonna be a building. It's gonna be a policy, it's gonna be a law. And that's why can care expansion is so important because I remember we were designing a trail project. We did all these kind of little interventions in Northeast KCK and it was such a fun project. We did community participation. We had kids and parents helping us design this park and we were doing an evaluation and seeing if people were using the stuff we built. Mm-hmm. And I, I was watching on my phone as uh, John McCain decided not to kill Obamacare. Mm. And I remember thinking in that moment, I could design the best freaking park in the world and if 20,000 of my neighbors just lost their lost their health insurance what difference does it make True. so that, that's why I try to do the work because the work you know sustains me and it fulfills that itch of being in buildings and community work but I also know that we need to be mindful of our the political factors that influence the social determinants of health is is what this is and I might be I might be jumping um is is the combination of architecture plus public health is that a unique thing that like you do or is that a common field of study (laughs) so yeah and and you're you're asking a really sort of like core question that gets Mm -hmm. to the heart of like a lot of what my phd is about and a lot of what um i will say this there is a audience and a a network of people around the country who know this work Mm-hmm. Um, we used to work with KU med professors uh, at KU Architecture because I, I was teaching at KU Architecture. I started this sort of collaboration with my colleagues, professors Shannon, Chris, and Niels Gore, and that agency was what we called it. And, and we had this great conversation one day with our um, KU med friends, Nikki Nolan, as a professor and doctor, or a professor at KU med. And she said, you know, the thing we love about what y'all do is uh, we talk about all these health problems, but we teach our students that there's a problem 
And what you all are doing is actually building the things that respond to the problem. And I think there's opportunity there. I know that in planning and architecture, we all know that the health is shaped by the built environment. The problem with architecture, in my opinion, is who pays the bills. Mm -hmm. If your client is a private developer and they have a financial vested interest in doing what is best for their bottom line, it may not make sense to do a community garden or a walking trail, which just costs them more money and they don't benefit from it. And so there's a problem in the profession of architecture that we don't often have the latitude we need to do the kind of things that we know the community would want. Um, some clients are different. Some clients really do love that kind of stuff. And that's great. The majority don't right? because it costs money. Everything in the built environment costs more than you think it does. Um, so cities care about it, but cities rarely employ architects to do the work. It's sort of in a department of basically general maintenance, right? Like fixing mm -hmm. sidewalks or it's an economic development, incentivizing grocery store development. It's mm -hmm. not like, hey, we're going to go actually go build that thing the community wants. And so what we learned is as a discipline, maybe not as a profession, but as a discipline, the idea that you listen to communities and then go build the things that they want to see is actually a really big benefit to building trust in communities because trust, trust takes time. It takes time to build trust. It takes years. And I'm only now starting to get to the point where like I have relationships that have been formed over almost a decade and, and we can call each other, you know, and, and say, Hey, you know, this is something that's going on. You need to be aware. But that immediate kind of, Hey, we, we heard you. And then we came out the next week and we built something like that's kind of unique about architecture. And, and it's something that I wish more architects did. Unfortunately, there's just not a financial business model for it. And so unless you're working with healthcare or cities, you're, you're generally not going to be able to get paid. Um, we, we have, we have let our academic, uh, institutions steer our students towards designing, uh, mega projects. And the only people that can pay for those are usually not interested in, uh, average life expectancy and redlining and health equity. And like, those are the types of things that I'm interested in, but no firm is going to make a business out of that. So Matt, I was uh, wondering, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on our podcast was because you are a very vocal supporter of Medicaid expansion in Kansas. How did you become aware of the need for expansion in our state? And what about it motivates you to use your voice to advocate? Sure. And that's a great question. I think the first time I learned about it, I was working with David Jordan, who's now at the United Methodist um, I think it's the Health Foundation, but he, he was with Alliance for Healthy Kansas and David Jordan and I were classmates. And I heard him argue passionately for the need for can care expansion and not recognizing that there's a, there's, a, there's a gap, right? There are people who could qualify for health care that just because a few people in Topeka don't want to see people get health care, they don't have it. Mm -hmm. And if you lived in a different state, you might have it. Mm -hmm. and, and then you start to say, okay, well, what's the difference if you do and don't? Well, it, it's better for our health system, right? People get sick less often. We know it's more expensive to treat people at the emergency room than it is to prevent them from getting sick in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's what healthcare is. So it costs us more money if we don't provide um, health insurance to people. And, and for folks who are you know, living you know, at that poverty line, Maybe they make just a little too much to qualify for Medicaid. If we can close that gap and give them access to the basic healthcare resources, that would all save us all, like every one of us money. And I think that's a compelling thing, right? Because that, that hits our bottom line as a state. Mm -hmm. um, I also know that like there are jobs that are created because of healthcare expansion. There are hospitals that will survive on expanding can care. I mean, I work currently for Vibrant Health. Mm -hmm. um, they are a federally qualified health center. And, and we're in a space where there's a lot of folks who are uninsured. And so increasing um, access to health insurance, getting more people on helps them, but it also helps everyone else in our state who might be working in jobs where they can be that, you know, the dentist or the, the nurse practitioner or the person like me who's working to build community projects. Um, so there's, there's a vested interest in it's economic development, it's community building, it's jobs, it's, it's our economy. I think there's, you know, a health reason, but there's also an economic reason. And the other part that kind of gets back to it for me personally is like, I'm a Christian, um, like take care of the, the least of these. Like there's a 
foundational belief, in my opinion, to purposes for people that otherwise can't afford it. It is the Christian thing to do. My wife is Hindu. She feels the same way in her religion. Like taking care of people is the right thing to do. And as a government, if we can do something that saves us money, that gives people jobs, if it takes care of people and helps them be healthier, why not? It, it's, it's, a, it's a simple choice. The problem is, is that when one political party advocates for it and another one says, well, if you win, we lose, we're not going to let you win. Now, none of it gets done. And I think that's the core issue. The, the, the underlying issue is it's, we're not talking about the, the simple X's and O's mm-hmm. of healthcare expansion. What we're talking about is politics. And so that's where it doesn't matter how good the idea is. If somebody says, well, it's your idea, and then you win, if it's your idea, I'm going to fight you every step of the way. That's the issue. It could be anything. Um, but it just so happens that this is one that everybody wants. Everybody on both sides of the political aisle want. It's just a few people in Topeka don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the crux of where we are is, you know, 78%. Um, well, there's been, I think there's been four studies done in the last year or so, anywhere between 72 and 78% of people want it. And it's just very much like if almost eight out of 10 people want it, how is it, you know, the, the, something in the system that allows a couple of people to prevent something that almost eight out of 10 people want is kind of crazy to think about. I mean, at one point, this whole thing was called Romney care. Oh, yeah. Like, if we go back far enough, this is the fiscally conservative option for providing health insurance. Like, that's, that's crazy to me. Like, you know, if you, if you ask me what I would love, I'd love to see universal health care. Like, let's, let's make it simpler. Like, that, that's the big vision, right? But just mm-hmm. for right now, for those tens of thousands of people that are hurting, like, if we can't pass Romney care in Kansas, like, what are we doing? Um, but obviously there's a whole, there's history, there's perspectives, there's all kinds of things going on. So I, I understand all that. Um, it just, it hurts to see that there are people who could be benefiting and, and they don't, and, and they should. And that, that's something that I think we, um, as advocates, as activists, as organizers, as community leaders, as elected officials, wherever you sit, um, if you're not in the, if you say you're in the interest of serving the public good and you're not actually helping people, like we have a problem. Marissa, where are you, you're going to admit that I feel like the term Romney care makes me feel old because I remember it. Marissa, do you, Marissa's a little younger. Do you remember yeah, Romney I, care? I do not remember the term Romney care. Um, I'm sorry if that makes both of you feel old, um, oh, no. but I would love to learn more about that term. And I mean, cause I've never, I've never ran into that. I wonder if Taylor, Taylor is my age and she's our colleague. So I wonder if she's heard of that, but. <laughs> and like, I was reminded of this um, last night. Uh, there was a, a lobbyist who works for the unified government um, who gives updates frequently to groups like the one I have, I'm a part of Voter Rights Network of Wyandotte And he mentioned, um, because if you remember, he said Kathy Wolf Moore, he said, I think, um, did a sort of bait and switch where she filled the bill to, to get uh, can care expansion. It got through the House, it got through the Senate, and then it was vetoed by Sam Brownback. So maybe our, our you know, uh, method is we call it Brownback care, you know, like mm. whatever, it, whatever <laughs> it takes, like let's help people, like let's put politics aside and let's actually help people. But the problem is, is we can't do that for some reason in Kansas. Well, you mentioned unified government. So you are incredibly involved in health efforts in Wyandotte County, like you said, through Vibrant Healthcare and DOT Agency, both of which you talked about. Estimates show that Wyandotte County alone would stand to gain nearly 2,500 jobs, more than $64 million in new annual healthcare spending, and not to mention the nearly 7,500 Kansans who would gain health coverage. So since you're so involved in Wyandotte County and you just see all of these pieces, talk to us about how you see Medicaid expansion impacting Wyandotte County. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I know that Vibrant Health is one Mm -hmm. of three federally qualified health centers in Wyandotte County. And the other two are Swope Health 
and Midland Care. And Midland Care runs the PACE program. So they serve seniors who qualify, but Swope and, and Vibrant serve similar populations. Um, we're mostly serving east of 635 to the eastern kind of quarter of our county, but it's the most populated area. Over 86,000 people live east of Highway 635, which for those of you that aren't familiar with the geography of Wyandotte County, we're right up against state line. We're right up against the edge of the eastern part of our county. The further west you go, the more sparsely populated it is. But I, I've worked in the neighborhoods east of 635 a lot, and I know how much um, access to healthcare means to people. I also know that like there's a lot of folks that just don't have it or can't afford it. I've 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 worked for a long time with groups like the Community Health Council and mm -hmm. Molly Goodbed and Donna Young and Ricardo Ortiz and Brian Matlock and Essence Miller and Kim Weaver. Like there is a team of people whose entire job it is to connect people to health insurance, to connect people. Cause we think it's easy if you're your health insurance is covered by your employer. Mm -hmm. And I've sat down with folks who don't have good eyesight or they can't afford a phone and they don't know how to navigate the marketplace. And sometimes they get there and like, what do you, what do you do? You don't qualify. Um, there's a lot of people like that. And, and, and we, I think Wyandotte County as a whole, I think often gets overlooked on multiple fronts. Um, we get overlooked by the state because they see us as, um, a min min minority majority population. We have a very diverse community. We have over 72 languages spoken in our schools. We do not have a racial wow. ethnic majority. We're one of the most diverse counties in the country. And I don't think Kansas likes us very much because they just racially gerrymandered us in the last redistricting process. Um, so Kansas as a whole does not really take Wyandotte County um, seriously because they don't see us as Kansas for some reason. Whereas Kansas City also doesn't really take us seriously. Um, I grew up I grew up in Johnson County. Um, I grew up a 143rd and all Blue Valley West High School graduate. Um, I never went to Wyandotte County at all in my entire life until I started working here. Um, Wyandotte County is KCK and KCK is Wyandotte County, but oftentimes the big brother to our east, Casey Mo, has a lot of the attention. Um, mm -hmm. So we see um, efforts where groups from Johnson County and Casey Mo come in and thinking they're going to be the, the white saviors of healthcare and issues in, in, in Wyandotte County. Um, and, and I think what we're starting to realize is can care can increase access to opportunity, but it's not going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Like we, we are still ranked last or near to last in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation County Health Rankings. Um, and some of that is related to access to healthcare, and some of that is 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 the lack of investment our communities has seen for decades. Mm -hmm. um, when J.C. Nichols was building out south, and desegregation happened, white flight drained Wyandotte County, where we had a population in the 1960s of 160,000 people. Today mm -hmm. we have 160,000 people. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure set up sewers and bridges and roads for a much larger population that we cannot afford. And so we lose access to basic healthcare services um, because we don't have the opportunity to make the investments that increase you know, people's quality of life. And so we have a whole host of issues. I think can care can help, but it's also not gonna be a silver bullet for us. Um, and you mentioned jobs earlier and I, I'm, I, don't, I might sound like I'm pushing back. I'm not pushing back. I'm just raising these other things that I hear in our community. Most of the jobs in the healthcare sector are probably going to be at FQHCs like where I work or at places like KU Med, which is in the southeast corner of uh, Wyandotte County. Most mm. of those jobs are not held by Wyandotte County residents, though. Mm. A lot of folks come from Johnson County and Jackson County, Missouri to work in those settings. And so there are structural challenges that we need to deal with, but just at the basic level for people having more access to healthcare is a good thing. And I think that's why it's most critical for Wyandotte County is that we can do that. We'll help a lot more people, especially, you know, we're, I think um, it's, it's a proxy, but there's a thing called the Justice 40 initiative that's come up through the White House and the Environmental Justice Index. Kansas has, I think, 204 Justice 40 census tracts. We have 40 of them in Wyandotte County. So we're like, one we're like one fifth of the state's most vulnerable population in one county. We're one fifth of the most vulnerable. So I think 
there's absolutely a need for can care and it will help our community i think at a, at a greater rate than maybe other counties where you know health insurance is is more tied to different things but um, i also know that we've got a lot of work to do here in wyandotte and so it's 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 going to be a piece of a larger puzzle Last month, a report from the Kansas Health Institute was uh, published indicating that in addition to the financial benefits that places like vibrant clinics would see from expansion, there would also be benefits that are a little bit more indirect, like fewer children entering the Kansas foster care system due to neglect and reduced rates of arrest and incarceration in the criminal justice system. And I really thought that report just showed some really fascinating things. So I was wondering, how do you think that would impact Wyandotte County? I think that's a great point. And I, you know, I can't speak with too much knowledge because I don't have as much experience with the foster system in Kansas. I know we have a lot of problems there. I know a lot of people are trying to fix that system and I'm glad they are. In, in Wyandotte, I know there's a group called Foster Adopt Connect that's it's relatively new to Wyandotte County and they're doing great work. Um, DCF has a location in Wyandotte County and they're doing a lot of work. But I think the, the, the challenges of getting our young people access to healthcare is, is so important. There's a lot of research that's been done on adverse childhood experiences or mm-hmm. ACE scores. And when we look at how health impacts people, not just at a young age, but also their family members, like uh, a traumatic health event is trauma. And that impacts a whole lifetime of health outcomes. And so, you know, there's a lot of sayings in the built environment work that your zip code is a better predictor for your average life expectancy or your health outcomes than your DNA. And I know that's, I know that's true in Wyandotte County because neighbors in the Turtle Hill neighborhood, uh, the most recent heat report, the health equity action transformation report done by uh, the community health council and the Kerwin Institute a few years ago, if you go to a website, it's called wearewyandotte.com illustrates that the the most recent maps show it's a 24-year average life expectancy between Turtle Hill in Northeast KCK and Piper, also in Wyandotte County on the western edge. 24 years based on where you live. And so for children growing up in those communities, access to can care is huge. And we have a very diverse population, like I said before. So I, I think the more we can do to like take care of the children. I know this goes back to sort of the, the purpose part of it for me. You know, what you do into the least of these, like there are children that could benefit from having more access to healthcare. Now, thankfully, like at, at our FQHC at Vibrant Health, like we serve a lot of uninsured and underinsured people. So they can get health insurance through Vibrant Health. Or they can get healthcare through Vibrant Health. Mm-hmm. But communicating that and getting that message out there and helping people take down those barriers to access is huge. And, and a lot of it's language barriers. A lot of it's the fear of, you know, what, what, what information is going to get collected. I know that there's groups like El Centro in Wyandotte County uh, who are doing an incredible job with their Promotoris de Salud program, just making uh, health care translatable, making, making access to health care translatable. I know the Community Health Council has a ton of community health workers Community health workers in general are sort of the backbone industry of helping people get access to things like can care. And so thankfully, we have a lot of people in Wyandotte County doing that. But for children especially, it's like, like set kids up to be successful in life. And I think that's one thing I'd like to see us illustrate more is that the more we can get families the health insurance they need, the, the better off we're going to see families for generations to come. It's an investment in our future. So like, why not do it? Mm-hmm. I knew that there were a lot of languages spoken in Wyandotte County. I was taken aback when you said 72 because, yeah, we work, Marissa in particular, works with El Centro um, to find storytellers and, and people to tell their stories about issues with access like that. But um, Spanish, which I think is primarily what El Centro does, is only one of 72 languages my goodness, that's a lot of languages. Yeah. And it's a, it's a big one, but um, you look at other groups like Bethel Neighborhood Center and uh, Reverend Mong Sun is their director, executive director down there. And he's got, I think, nine different Asian American communities that is, he coordinates with. Mong, Burmese, Nepali. It, it, we have a, a large Somali refugee population. We have Afghan refugees. We have Ukrainian refugees. Like we have a lot of diversity in our community. And so there, there are certainly challenges associated with increasing the accessibility. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just, just having expansion might not be enough. Like we also need to make sure that we're 
mindful of how people learn about it, how people apply for it. And right now, with all of the, the, the expiration of COVID authorization, you know, mm-hmm. how people can stay on it, right? Because if mm-hmm. you haven't updated your address, like there's a lot of concern. I know that El Centro and the CHC and others are starting to pick up on that. We need to be communicating with folks because mm-hmm. this is, I mean, this stuff is so complicated and that's part of the challenge of it. But at least if we have more opportunity, more people will benefit. We had um, Heather Brom from Kansas Action for Children on. She talked about the welcome mat effect, how uh, even though children qualify for can care, if their parents don't, you know, they may not know that their children do. They may not go through that process, but by offering it to, you know, the parents, the kids will benefit too. So um, I not heard that term welcome mat effect, but it makes sense. So, you know, opening access helps the kids too, not just adults. So many Kansans will recognize your name from your time playing basketball at the University of Kansas from 2006 to 2009 and being part of the national championship team during that time. But uh, since clearly from our conversation, you can tell since then, you've continued your studies and community work and architecture as public health. So we kind of cover this. I think this is where I jumped ahead and what we were going to talk about. That's okay. I think when most people think of architecture, they think of designing and creating buildings. And when people think of public health, they think about preventing disease. So is there anything else you want to say about this, this overlap between the two worlds and and how you kind of have one foot in both of them? Sure, I'm happy to. And I, I know I said a little bit about before. I have been fortunate to be mentored by a lot of great people. And one of them is Shannon Chris and, and the other one's Dale's Gore. And they together, the three of us started that agency. And so we we really saw our starting point as, as just working with communities to figure out what they wanted. And more often than not, what they want has an end result. What they want is something that increases health. It might be physical activity. It might be healthy eating. It might be safety and mental health. There was a story of a, a woman next to a project that our students were working on. They worked with kids at Emmy Pearson Elementary School to come up with a design for a, a urban farm tool shed. And Steve Curtis was leading that project. And we we met with their neighborhood members around the community, you know, canvassed the neighborhood. And one of the women that was next door to the project mentioned how she had a, a traumatic health event occur because a streetlight went out. And the streetlight went out and she didn't feel safe in her neighborhood. And because she didn't feel safe in her neighborhood, she didn't go check on the sound outside of her house when her car got stolen. And because her car got stolen, she didn't get to the hospital in time uh, or didn't get to the pharmacy to renew her medications. And she didn't have a way to get to the pharmacy. And so here we are thinking, well, she's not taking her meds and she's having a mental health breakdown. A street light went out. And so we, we look at the built environment and we think, well, let's categorize it as 20% of social determinants of health, but it shapes our behaviors. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about how um, my experience as an architect and an urban designer, and just to be very clear, because architects will get um, upset about this, I am not an architect. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've, got like three degrees in architecture. I am not an architect. Uh, that's a <laughs> profession that I am not an architect. I want to be very clear on that one. Um, but I am an urban designer. And, and a lot of the work I do, I think, is actually more community health design. It, it is about how do we work with people to envision and then build the things that they want to see that improve health outcomes. That's um, why we need to be, you know, building sidewalks. We, we did a project a few years ago, and, and this is speaking of Wyandotte County specifically, um, General Motors had $10,000 that they were giving to all these different organizations where they had plants, um, neighborhood areas where they had plants. And we have one in Fairfax District in Wyandotte County, a General Motors plant. And so they were giving it to the National Organization of Minority Architects um, to do a camp for what's called Project Pipeline, um, architecture summer camp to address summer learning loss. And the guy who was running it, he's the president-elect for NOMA, Brian Seeley Jr. Um, he and I had worked together. I did a fellowship in New Orleans. And he calls me up and says, hey, I'd love to do an architecture camp in KCK. So we put on a camp in like, uh, I think in like six weeks, we planned and developed a camp curriculum. And we had 30 kids from Wyandotte County, ages nine to 19, learning about health equity. They learned from the late Roderick Crawford, who's a community mm-hmm. champion, and he was an incredible ally. And I've learned so much from him and we miss him dearly. And Rachel Jefferson, who's the executive director of Groundwork Energy, 
And Broderick and Rachel introduced the youth into um, health equity and redlining. And then that was day one. They learned about design. They, they came up with some ideas. Um, the students, these are young people, mind you, learned about how their neighborhoods have been impacted by decades of disinvestment, which are often racially motivated, but sometimes it's just the economics of the world too. And then they had a response, a creative response to it. I used to work for Youth Build. I worked for Youth Build after I started sort of winding down that agency. And Youth Build, for those that don't know, is the Department of Labor Apprenticeship Training Program. So when you say you want to hire young people to build homes, like Youth Build is the national model for that. There's other groups that can do it. There's a lot of them in KC that could do it. But Youth Build is the national network that's most commonly doing that work. And we took all the kids on day two of this camp to Youth Build where we had nine-year-olds using power tools, drilling and sawing. And one of the projects I remember was these nine-year-olds said that they felt like their neighborhood wasn't safe enough to walk in because there had been a uh, crossing guard that was killed on Leavenworth Road just earlier that year. Wow. And so built a full-sized movable crossing guard that they could push with a flag on it and they could push it out into the street. And so they, they built it. Like nine-year-old designed it and built it in two days. They built the full thing. Another project was kids who, um, high schoolers from Wyandotte High School who talked about the fear of gun violence in their school. And they said that sometimes when aggression boils over, people resort to gun violence because obviously we don't have enough gun regulations in this country and guns are widely available. And so they said, well, what if we had an alternative? And so they created a water balloon filling station. <laughs> so kids could have a water balloon fight and a red team and a blue team and on either side and we built the whole thing and then we used it on the third day the third day the kids presented their projects back to the community and we had a water balloon fight that ended the whole thing that's incredible and, and, i love that <laughs> and, and, and so to me like architecture and building things goes so hand in hand with these really systemic wicked problems um, a wicked problem is often talked about in the space of architecture as any problem that is societal and is cross-jurisdictional. So climate change is a wicked problem. We could have the most climate forward city, state, country, and the rest of the world still might heat up, right? Like we mm -hmm. need collaboration across different boundaries. And it's a wicked problem. It can't just be a political challenge. It can't just be a healthcare challenge. It can't just be a, you know, neighborhoods, talking to neighborhoods challenge. It's all of the above. And so wicked problems, oftentimes people get really bogged down in, and I think it, they get lost in the, uh, the, the, just the unending challenge of it all. So when you work with youth, especially with youth, but also when you just work with communities, and you can build something that is sort of a tangible response. I think that's why arts and culture is so powerful in a lot of uh, social movements and organizing movements because you're creating something and people see that you're creating something and that gets them excited and then they wanna come out and create something with you because you're doing something. And so I think when, when we talk about can care expansion, what are we creating? What are we doing right now that is tangible and is actionable and we can touch it and we can feel it and we can, you know, put it on a coffee mug and we can wear it on our bodies and we can march with those signs and we can also go do something that is a physical fun thing that gets people out of their doors, invites your neighbors to join us. Oh, and by the way, there's a policy you need to vote about or call your legislators to vote about. Um, so I think that's what architecture is really a good fit in public health mm -hmm. because we can build things. And, and if you can build things with communities that start to um, imagine a future that is healthier, well, it gives us something to look towards. And it's sort of like, oh, like, let's go that way. Like that, that way looks fun. That's, that's the future we wanna have. And so I, I really believe that there's a really nice synergy between architecture as a discipline, maybe not as a profession, but as a discipline and public health. And it's the way we used to be before we professionalized everything, before everything was a degree and a, um, you know, a job and a career and a LinkedIn profile and a resume. If you go back far enough, there's a there's these for the architects in the room. They're going to laugh. There's a treatise on architecture that was done by a guy named Vitruvius way 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 back in yeah, time. Yeah, the like man, Vitruvius man. So he was a guy. 
Vitruvius okay. was a guy, and he wrote these things called the, the Ten Treaties on Architecture. And one of the things he talks about is uh, you have to plan for wind and air and water quality. Like plan your buildings to be responsive to the environment. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about water quality and air quality, who does that? That's public health now. Mm -hmm. So like used to think about things more holistically. And, and I think what we're seeing now in parts of our country, and I think what we're doing in KCK is we're trying to work holistically. Um, but also with a lens towards uh, historic injustices so that we're allowing community members to lead and, and tell their own stories and, and do the work. But also there's a double-edged sword that we're not expecting the communities to do all the work. We have to still show up as elected officials and um, be accountable to community members, but not expect those with the most burdens to carry more burdens for us all. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done across the board, but I think when you build things and you bring people together, um, that, that's that's the stuff that gets me excited, and that's the kind of stuff I love doing. And I think people respond to it well, and that's um, what I what I'll probably keep doing as I work with Vibrant Health. Tell me, Matt, do you like Field of Dreams, and that if you build it, they will come? Because that's what that reminded me of. <laughs> you know, I I actually don't think that's necessarily true. No. Uh, it, it, it's 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 a great point, right? Like. Yes, that's a very catchy thing. Um, but if you build it, they will come implies that um, you don't need to talk to folks first. I'm a big mm -hmm. believer in meeting people where they are. And so meeting people where they are implies I go to a community and I sit into a neighborhood meeting and I listen and I listen and I listen and someone's going to say something that's going to perk my ears. Hey, maybe they want a basketball court renovated. Hey, maybe they want a, a park space fixed up. Hey, there's a need for a grocery store. And so my approach has been not if they if you build it, they will come. It's that the community is trying to be building it. And let's let's treat it like stone soup. Let's throw in our skills into the pot, um, whether you're an architect or a public health professional or somebody in whatever career you have. Let's build on our assets, but put it in service to community. So Matt, in addition to your work as a PhD student in architecture, uh, you're now also the director of community development at Vibrant Health. And so Vibrant has been such a critical coalition member for us at the Alliance and advocating for expansion for many, many years now. Can you tell us more about Vibrant Health and the work that you do there? Sure. And I'm, 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 I'm going to have to apologize to my colleagues. I'm two months in on the job, so I'm not fully aware of everything that Vibrant Health does, but I know we offer an incredible amount of resources to uninsured and underinsured populations. I think we serve about 15,000 patients in Wyandotte County. Um, we have dental care. Um, I, I've gone to our dentist, they're great, great dentists. Um, dental care, um, well-being, mental health care, women's health care, um, behavioral health care, pediatrics is a big part of it. Vibrant Health was formed six years ago as a merger through a Turner House clinic, which was in the Northeast area of KCK, the KU Pediatrics Clinic, and the Silver City Argentine Healthcare System. And so an FQHC, or Federally Qualified Health Center, is a special designation that allows for the clinic to build Medicare and Medicaid. And so it allows for a greater amount of you know, revenue for the clinic so that they can serve more people. And so I worked previously for Children's Mercy for about a year to a year and a half. And Children's Mercy has a great relationship with uh, Vibrant Health. And, and so Children's Mercy used to have a clinic over at the Meeks Clinic, um, Cordell Meeks Clinic, on about, I think it's like 32nd and State roughly, but it's in KCK. And, and Vibrant Health took that space over. And so Vibrant Health is in a sort of a growth stage right now because there is a need um, for increased access to healthcare in our community. And, and so my role with them, they brought me on because as we're looking to grow, how does that work? Are we growing within our existing building? Well, we're kind of bursting at the seams at the central location, which is on Central Avenue. It's in near Bethany Park, for those of you that are familiar with Wyandotte County. And so we, they've expanded, they've renovated, they've expanded, they've renovated. Like there's two floors, there's a pharmacy on the first, like everything's growing. And there's a need for also reaching a underserved population that just doesn't have a clinic in anywhere nearby. And that's in the Northeast area of Kansas City, Kansas, where I currently live. And so for folks that don't know Wyandotte County, the Northeast area is sort of a catch-all for multiple neighborhoods, each distinct from each other, but it's predominantly Black. I'd say it's about half 
of the community is black and older. There's also a sort of, a, as, as our communities become more diverse, there's an increasing younger population of Hispanic and Latino residents. And, and it's it's very diverse, just like the rest of our county, but it's especially diverse in the Northeast area. And so there is not a clinic that really serves those residents very well. You're kind of got to drive a little bit to get to the nearest one. So they hired me to help them develop a clinic. But the bigger vision is a clinic is just a building. And this was sort of the departure point for me early on in my career as an architect. I was at a conference it was like a Harvard School of Public Health, AIA, Design Health Collaborative. It was a national network. And we, I was at the conference and some architect was presenting this really beautiful building. It was an apartment complex that was like all green and it was extremely healthy. Like everything was healthy. And I remember thinking, yeah, but it's market rate and who's going to afford to live there? And how are you going to address all of the folks who live around you who will never step foot in that building? And so what we're looking at with Vibrant Health is how can our clinic actually address access to health out in the neighborhoods around where the clinic goes. And so that has us engaging with community partners, talking about issues of land use and how we can provide permanently affordable housing. If it's not us doing it, it's one of our community partners doing it. It has us talking about environmental justice issues. We have a sewer system that is really struggling. And so clean water through green infrastructure, that can support some of the work we're doing. How do we grow food so that there's not just like we're going to be in a it's often called a food desert. But, you know, mm -hmm. the more you get into the world of food issues, it's actually food apartheid. There have been intentional choices that have prevented this community from having access to a grocery store over decades. And so the community set forth a vision for food sovereignty. How do you not just sell food in your neighborhood, but grow it? And how do you have ownership of that? And so supporting those types of projects takes more than just a building. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at to not only do a building, but also to invite community members to be a part of the process of developing some form of a community development corporation that would work with Vibrant Health, but it would sort of be its own thing. And so my role is to help bring partners to the table, um, engage different groups, shareholders, stakeholders in the community, um, both those who are in positions of formal leadership, but also those in formal leadership and just everyday community members who want to be a part of it. And so we're doing that process on a variety of fronts. We're taking site visits to different areas to see what it would look like to have a place-based strategy to developing health access in our Northeast community but to also align that work with everywhere Vibrant is. And so my, my job is, is sort of a dream job for me is, is working with community members to, to build things that make our, everybody healthier. And, and it's a daunting task and we're not gonna solve it overnight. It's gonna be years of this work. But one thing I've learned in my experience with that agency and others is building trust takes time, but you can build a community today. And so we're looking at early action projects. One of the projects I'm working on, and I, I hope that will be done with soon as a basketball court that would honor the legacy of Roger Crawford. He and I were working on it before he got sick. And it'd be great to have some of the work that we've been started get, be completed and, and show, hey, this is what it looks like when we actually do what we say we're going to do. And that builds trust. So I think part of my job will be this big idea of getting a clinic built. But the part I'm most excited about is actually doing the things that people have been wanting to see and, and maybe starting small, but letting that build momentum and build some infrastructure with our community partners so that they're the beneficiaries as well. So that we're not just doing it in service to Vibrant Health, but we're doing it for the benefit of everybody in the community, including those existing partners who really want to see implementation. Um, they want to see things done. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge. So that's what I get to work on uh, every day. And it, it's been a joy to work on it so far. So you, you, I think you mentioned earlier that you worked with the Community Health Council of Wyandotte County, who is another coalition member of the Alliance, where you assisted with efforts to improve the built environment to reduce rates of type two diabetes. And um, what, when I was, you know, looking into some of the work that you've done, I was particularly interested in uh, a WICO food map and the dot mobile gross, grocer. So can you tell us about those? I'm just really like, I just thought they were cool ideas. Yeah. So, you know, th this is sort of what launched me into this public health space was there was a, a, what was called a 1422, which is a random number, but it was what we, the CDC called this grant that went across the country. And there was seven counties across the state of Kansas that were on the grant. And their job was to do um, 15 things that were evidence-based 
to reduce type 2 diabetes in a community. And uh, diabetes prevention programs, or DPP, oftentimes led by YMCAs, are like classes where you uh, learn about healthy eating, you learn, you know, are physically active, and you do all the things that science says you need to do to get off your, uh, get your A1C levels under control and to get off your insulin or metformin and, and basically, you know, reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes. That was 11 of the 15 strategies that the Community Health Council had. But the first four were built environment, and they didn't have anybody on staff that could do that work. So they had seen my colleagues and I at that agency doing community projects, and we were, we were giving our student architecture students like, hey, uh, design a healthcare clinic with a grocery store on the corner that has a walking trail and a futsal soccer field in a park that's underutilized in Wyandotte County. And they were, they were like looking at that stuff going, holy cow, like you're doing what? Like, do you want to, do you want to do this for real? And we did, and we did some small pieces, but like doing that kind of work takes a lot of money. So what we were doing was helping design programs and initiatives that could kind of fall under this 1422 grant. And so it was increasing access to healthy food, increasing access to walkability. Uh, There's a lot of infrastructure work. So sidewalk, you know, we did neighborhood organizing for sidewalk repair programs. But for food access specifically, it was a journey for me to figure out like, okay, what, what do we do? And the very first thing I did research, I looked around, you know, nationally, the number one thing to do is get access to WIC improved. For those that don't know, special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children is one of the number one ways that kids receive nutrition in this country. It is a program. It, it's, it's people call food stamps. We, we haven't had food stamps in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, food stamps is SNAP, EBT, and WIC. And TANF, I guess. But WIC is a very specific program that the Health Department of Wyandotte County um, has an office for either women or parents and guardians who are, who have children that are uh, prenatal or five and younger, I think it is, can receive a, basically a voucher for certain food items that the government, the federal government says are uh, contributing to a healthy childhood development, right? So making sure that a kid's got plenty of fresh vegetables or um, you know, whole wheat or, you know, tortillas or like, you know, you name it, there's, there's an item that probably aligns with WIC. It's not everything, but the way that those programs get administered is interesting. So WIC is something that a grocery store has to offer because they have to be able to accept the WIC voucher. Now they're electronic cards, so it's e-WIC, but it was at the time paper vouchers. And one thing we kept hearing was people don't know where WIC is. We have a lot of grocery stores in Wyandotte County. I think we have about 16 but most of the WIC stores are not where most people live. You got your price choppers and your uh, high V's and your, you know, Walmarts, and they would carry WIC, but they're out west. They're not near where our population is. Um, or we, we heard stories from people who were to get to redeem WIC, they were having to drive to a different county or a different state. Uh, they, they couldn't use it in different states, but they were like, they, they couldn't get the food that they needed in the community that they lived in. And so that was our first sort of like, oh, that's a, that's a thing we could work on. So in, in my work in community health design, very, usually the first thing you need to do um, is talk to people, listen to them. But the first action is usually to draw a map. Draw a map because it helps identify where there's gaps. And, and we started to look at maps of food access in Wyandotte County. And one of the issues was we had a lot of food partners tell us, oh, don't draw a map. We've done that. We had a huge grant from the Mid-America Regional Council, and we drew a map, and it showed where everything was food access. And I looked at the map, and one of the locations where they said that there was a grocery store was the corporate headquarters of Associated Wholesale Grocers. Mm-hmm. And so the way that these maps get drawn is they look at this database called the Dun & Broad Street data, and the categories are based on the types of names that the businesses are. So they said... Uh, the corporate warehousing is the place where you can find fresh food and it's a grocery store. And so on this map telling everybody in Wyandotte County where food access is an issue, this area was not an issue because it says there's a grocery store there. And so it taught us early on, if you don't talk to people, if you don't listen, if you don't ground truth the work, um, we as people who do stuff at a 30,000 foot view do not know what it's like to actually walk along the sidewalk to get to and from that grocery store with grocery bags in your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was how we approached it. We reached out to the community. I mean, we were working with the community health council, but we had community health workers, we had emergency food coalitions, um, basically design a map with us and say, what are all the locations you're aware of? And we pulled in all the databases we could. I think we had over 120 locations on this map. 
one of the challenges is, okay, how do you use the map? And so we printed it in four different languages because that's what we were told would be the most beneficial. We had English, Spanish, Burmese, and Nepali. Um, looking back, I'd probably now do Somali because Nepali we've learned is not a language that's often, uh, it's a spoken language often, but not always a, a, a written language in our community. And so like we've learned since then. Um, the map is also a moment in time. Uh, you, we printed this big foldable map. I think we printed thousands of copies. Our community health workers would hand them to people to say, here's where you can find your nearest Wix stores. Here's where you can find your nearest bodegas. Here's where you can find your nearest senior food meals on wheels programs. Um, and it was much more like in the weeds, but it was also much more accessible. The problem was, is the next year, like one of those places closes, or maybe we missed one and like, then they come online and they're not on the map. So there's challenges, right? And we had an online version and that still exists, but the longer we go, the less useful it is. So in response to that, we had healthcare partners, Humana initially reached out and we had a nonprofit from KCMO who wanted to be a part of building a mobile grocery store because we realized it's it's really expensive and really hard to get a grocery store built. We tried to get some existing stores to carry WIC, but we learned so much about WIC that like, I don't want to bore you, but like it costs a lot of money to switch your inventory payment system to one of the nine approved vendors payment systems that WIC nationally allows for. And so like we tried and, and we had one grocery store and a Latino grocery store stocking everything that WIC needed but then they wouldn't spend the $10,000 and totally reset their inventory system for us, for them to accept WIC. And so like the rules and regulations really get into the, into the mix sometimes. So we thought, hey, let's get a mobile grocery store because a lot of folks wanted access of food at their senior housing. I interviewed a woman um, at, a, at a housing project who said, my doctor prescribed me fruits and vegetables, but I can't get to the store without paying somebody $25 to let me ride in his vehicle. What does it mean to me? I'm gonna to go to Family Dollar and I'm gonna get snacks because that's all I can afford and that's all that's in my vicinity. Mm-hmm. She talked about a mobile market because she'd been around one before um, and which, where she lived previously. And she goes, it made, it made you feel like you were cared about, that somebody knew your name, that they would show up to your door and they would bring you food and you can go outside and there's your food. And so stories like that, we realized that we needed to have a community advisory board effectively. So we organized a group called the Mobile Market Community Council a group of residents came together. They started helping us design it. They said, here's what the truck's going to look like. Here's what it's going to say. Here's what's going to be on it. Here's what it's going to carry. And my job was to sort of facilitate that. Um, say, you know, is it this or this? Um, do you want us to design this option, this route, or that option and that route? And so what we struggled with was the nonprofit that was backing it fell apart. And so when they fell apart, it really hurt. Um, our community felt like they were let down. And so the community council that sort of was advisory role moved into an ownership role and they took over. And when COVID hit, we were just about to launch and we had a driver hired and we were ready to go. And then COVID hit and everything sort of fell apart. We hopped back on the road later that fall of 2020 with CARES Act funding from the Unified Mm -hmm. Government. And I think we provided 120 USDA food boxes a day, 120 food boxes a day for about a year. Um, I think we put 16,500 food boxes out into community spaces that otherwise might not have had them. Now, a lot of groups did that. Uh, full credit to the churches, the social organizations, like everybody was doing food boxes. But when, as the rules got tighter and tighter, they required refrigeration for mm-hmm. the food items because otherwise you're just letting stuff bake in the sun and our mobile market could refrigerate things. And so it worked great. Um, but eventually what we learned is the economy was so tight and our nonprofit approach was not enough to retain drivers. And so our drivers moved on and they, they took higher paying jobs elsewhere. And um, it's been sort of on hold for a while, but I'm excited to share that even just earlier this month, um, uh, there's a nonprofit organization uh, in Kansas City, Cultivate Kansas City, that's mm-hmm. going to be taking a more active role leading operations. And our community council has given their blessing to say, yes, please get that mobile grocer back on the road and serve communities. But we know there's other mobile markets in our area. I know Truman Healthy Harvest Mobile is doing a great work. I know Candy's Markets is looking to do a mobile. There's, there are people doing food access and there's a national network of people trying to do this. And I get calls a lot from folks across the state saying, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? Um, people want mobile markets because grocery stores are closing. Small town grocery stores are closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if anybody's listening and is interested, go to Veggie Van Toolkit. And there's a website, there's a, there's a national network, there's a conference this month in March. There are people who are using mobile markets to increase access to healthy food. It's not a silver bullet like everything else, but it does help 
get food out into communities where there's low access. And so I think it's a great model, um, but it's going to take some work and it's going to take some investment and it's going to take some, you know, philanthropy or businesses willing to say, hey, let's invest in this for the long haul because it, it, it is a challenge to do any new idea when you got to pay for drivers and gas and food items. Grocery stores are really tight margins, like mm-hmm. really tight. Like you, you can lose money very easily in running a grocery store. So we'll see what happens. But my hope is, is that, you know, in a year or two, it, it's a sustainable model, if not through the sales, at least through the philanthropy and the grants that can support it. And what'd you say that was veggie? The veggie van toolkit. And it's a resource provided by the University of Buffalo. They have, Buffalo, they have an entire team dedicated towards research on this. They, they put out published articles, they do studies. It's incredible amount of research and, and they create toolkits, they create training modules. And I say, don't, you know, I can, I can give you my experience, um, but the real experts are this group in Buffalo and they coordinate the entire nation on mobile markets. And really they're doing it internationally. They got a guy up in uh, Canada who's actually building custom mobile markets that they're high end, they're beautiful. They run about $180,000 per vehicle. So it does help to have some philanthropic partners willing to invest with you. Well, very good. We'll include that in our show notes. So if you're listening and you missed it, just go check those. Um, Matt, this has been such a great conversation. I have learned so much, um, but I do have one final question for you, a question that we ask all of our guests on our podcast. Why are you one of the eight and 10 Kansans who support King Care Expansion? Because I love my neighbor. This is what loving your neighbor looks like. It means putting putting your politics aside, whatever you may feel, taking the best available evidence that's out there, allowing your community to inform what decisions you should make and then doing the hard work that people expect you to do. And I don't know of any reason why we shouldn't love our neighbors in this way. Oh, I love that answer. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I've loved most of them, but that one, that's so good. Well, Matt, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we missed today? Or you have done so much. I am honestly just in awe of how many experiences you've had like in life and could probably talk to you about all of them all day but we do have a limited amount of time sure and i i know i can get long-winded i i I just think um the the only thing i i I would suggest especially to your listeners is get connected to people Mm -hmm. There, there are more people than we realize that care about this stuff we're just not talking about it enough I think that's the thing I I keep coming away with is that there's a whole world of people out there who passionately care, but we we get too stuck in our silos and we get too caught up in our day to day. And I understand that. Um, But the more we can build those relationships, what we need to start doing is building power. Um, Oftentimes, the thing that is most lacking in all the community work I do is how do you build power? Um, And so going from neighborhood to neighborhood, precinct to precinct, county to county, you know, district to district, um, it's going to take a organized grassroots power building effort to where you can't silence this issue anymore. Um, I know we don't have the ballot initiative that Missouri does, but we do have hands and feet and mouths and ideas. And uh, if we work together, and we continue to push, um, I think it's just a matter of time. So I, I would encourage everybody to get connected, however you do it, get connected in your community so that um, this becomes an issue and let your legislators know, especially if your legislators are voting against it, let them know that this is something that you care about because if they don't hear it from you, they might not hear it at all. Um, so I think that's, we need to be intentional about organizing power building, but we need to get connected first. So that was our chat with Matt Kleinman. I still can't get over that the ACA was originally Romney Care. I really thought that it was a very leftist, uh, liberal idea, but it turns out it was actually bipartisan. I I can't get over how old I am, but <laughs> did I remember? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I loved the anecdote about the students who created a water balloon station as like a healthy response to frustration and stress. Yeah. I have always thought 
if you could like throw a water balloon at somebody when they made you mad like it might be healthier like it's healthier than some of the things we do so i am on board with those kids agreed well we love talking to matt and hope everyone else enjoyed it too we also wanted to let you know a few things that are coming up don't forget that one week from today march 15th is our rally for can care expansion at the kansas state house the rally will begin at 1.15 p.m. in the second floor north wing of the Kansas State House. We want anyone and everyone to come. Bring a friend and help us get attention for expansion. Also, as a reminder, we've got the Steps to Expansion campaign going on right now. It's never too late to get involved, so visit expandcancare.com, scroll down, and find the Steps to Expansion graphic to click and get all the details. And as always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the TikTok at expandcare. It, ooh at expand can care is our handle and uh we're always there go follow us um that's what we have for you this week we'll be back in two weeks with another episode where we'll give a recap of the rally see you all then health in the 34th is a podcast from the alliance for a healthy kansas we hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and share our podcast with others episodes written and produced by marissa alcatar and Lacey kennett special thanks to our editor callie holthouse Episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join the movement and get involved. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For more information on the Alliance for Healthy Kansas, visit us at expandcancare.com. And I actually used to say that you were my favorite KU basketball player. That's weird. (laughs) That's not weird. I, I appreciate that. He's tweeting about hand care expansion. I want to get him on the podcast. That makes him my favorite podcast host.